As we uh, think about God, and we just sung about His holiness and His majesty and how powerful and pure He is, as humans, we sometimes can have kind of an ambivalent reaction towards God. In one sense, we, we long to be in His presence, but in another sense, we, we can long for His absence, right? Um, especially when I was younger, I wanted God to be part of my life, but maybe not on Friday night and Saturday night. I wanted there to be some distance in my life from God because approaching a holy God can be kind of a, a terrifying thing when we really understand what this God is like and that we are total open books before him. There's no games that he does not see through. There's no facade that he does not penetrate. We are exposed and naked, the author of Hebrews says, before him. And I don't know about you, but being in that position is sometimes not comfortable. We allow physicians to do that to us once a year when we have our physical, but usually that's not something we look forward to. There's an aspect of kind of being fully vulnerable that is a little bit frightening. Uh, we have a family cabin in northern Wisconsin, and one of the things I used to do as a kid is feed the chipmunks. You know, there's tons of chipmunks, and you'd give them little peanuts, and just watching the chipmunks approach you, it'd be like, They'd really want that peanut, but then they'd pull back and there'd be this kind of dance between fear and attraction there uh, in their lives. And, and then they'd come ultimately and take that peanut. Uh, one came and bit my finger one time. I think that chipmunk is in Hades right now. <laughs> the reality is, but, uh, but again, that, that kind of feeling like, oh, I want to be close to this person that is so gracious, but also there's, there's some fear involved there as well. And as we look at kind of the whole narrative or story of Scripture, to me, the big picture in Scripture is that throughout Scripture, we see God calling us as human beings, as rebels who pushed him away back into relationship with him. He wants fellowship with us despite our failings. And we see this kind of throughout Scripture. I think most of us realize in life especially the older that you get, that the most fulfilling thing in life is a relationship with someone that's real and authentic and genuine. You know, and they always say, you know, on your deathbed, nobody says, oh, gee, I wish I'd spent more time in the office or more time working on that classic car out in the garage. No, it's I wish I'd spent more time with my family and those people around me that loved me. And I think that's something that's built in to all of us, we long for relationship and we long for relationship with God. Yet that's a struggle, right? In the midst of the brokenness of this world. I see the struggle even in human relationships. We long for that, but then as we move into those relationships, we can get hurt and burdened by them. And so then we can, can pull back and we see this whole kind of movement in social media to kind of cyber relationships. But interestingly, with that movement, the record numbers of people that I say they are lonely has increased dramatically. So despite the fact that we have, you know, a thousand friends in social media, sometimes we can still feel terribly lonely and alienated. And human relationships can be challenging because all of us are broken, right? And so many people in our day and age have just, ah, I'm not going to even go in for relationships. I just want the benefit of that relationship, right? Friends with benefits. So people get on websites like Tinder and they just hook up, but despite what may be thriving physical relationships, there's still a sense of deep loneliness and alienation even in the midst of all of that. 
And this longing for relationship, I think, is, is deep within us. And how do, we, how do we get there with God? How do we experience that type of authentic relationship with God? Not just at a distance, but, but close up. And I think this passage will help us a little bit as we push into that reality in our lives. A little bit of background. What's happened is basically Moses has gone up the mountain. He's come down with the Ten Words or the Ten Commandments. He's outlined that, and then he's given them what's called the Book of the Covenant. All these laws and things of how people in relationship with God are to approach him. And now we're coming to that section where basically the people are saying, yeah, we're all in. We agree. We're kind of ratifying this covenant. We're agreeing that we want God to be our God, and we're going to be his people. So that's kind of the point where we pick up in the story here. So I'm going to read Exodus 24, and then we'll talk a little bit about it before we celebrate the table together. Then he said to Moses, come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, Aaron's sons and 70 of the elders of Israel and worship from afar. Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near and the people shall not come up with him. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules That's the Ten Commandments and the Book of the Covenant. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and twelve pillars according to all the twelve tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins, and half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu and 70 of the elders of Israel went up. And they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, actually lapis lazuli, like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. The Lord said to Moses, come up to me on the mountain and wait there, that I may give you tablets of stone with the law and the commandment, which I have written for their instruction. So Moses rose with his assistant Joshua, and Moses went up the mountain of God. And he said to the elders, wait here for us until we return to you. And behold, Aaron and Hur are with you. Whoever has a dispute, let him go to them. Not the greatest piece of advice, as we will see later on. Then Moses went up on the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it for six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain. And Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. This is a reading of the word of God. So how do we experience closeness with God? To me, the first thing that I see in this passage here is that we need to recognize that God wants us with him. He's calling us up back to him. 
In this chapter, the Hebrew word for come up is used seven times, and I think that's significant. All throughout this chapter, it's come up, come up, come up. And there's various levels of closeness that the people are allowed and that the elders and the priests are allowed and then ultimately that Moses and maybe even Joshua are allowed to go to. But despite that fact, it's this calling for the people to come up. And it culminates with Moses going into the very presence of God at the top of the mountain. And this was a frightening thing, right? It's... We don't know what this fire is, is that lightning, is, but you know, the people look up and it's like, this is terrifying. And the New Testament lets us know even Moses was fairly terrified about this. So, you know, coming into the presence of a holy and mighty God is something that's a little bit daunting, yet in the midst of this, God is calling his people up. And despite the fact that these people are not the best people, right? We've looked throughout the passages in Exodus and we realize, man, as soon as they get out of Egypt, one little thing goes wrong and they're like ready to stone Moses and just like, yeah, I can't believe you took us in this way. So there's nothing inherent in this people or this group of people that God would say, wow, these are the best people on the planet. Man, I really want to be close to them. But it's because God set his love on these people that he's calling them up. And we see kind of these various levels of closeness that people are allowed. For the people of God, they're allowed kind of at the base of the mountain where Moses sets up the altar and these 12 pillars, each representing one of the tribes of Israel. And we see that there's sacrifices that are offered by the young men of Israel. And you read that and you're like, what in the world is going on? Because the sacrificial system hasn't even been instituted yet, right? Moses is about to receive all those instructions, but we see this whole issue of sacrifice goes all the way back to the beginning, right? The first sacrifice was what? One that God made to clothe Adam and Eve. And then we see the sacrifice that God accepted from Abel, right? That was the offering that was pleasing to God. And then we see Noah offering a sacrifice. And earlier in Genesis, when Jethro comes to give Moses some advice, we see Jethro, this priest of Midian, a priest of God, I think as well, that he has a sacrifice and the elders come out. And this is the first time we hear this number of the 70 elders of Israel. So where do these people come from? 70 is one of those numbers of completeness in Scripture. And I think my feeling is these are likely the guys when Jethro came. Remember, Moses was doing everything. And Jethro, his father-in-law, comes into town and says, Moses, man, you're wearing yourself out. You're wearing the people out. You need to distribute some of this work around. And he says, pick among you guys that don't like bribes, that fear the Lord, that are men of integrity, pick these people out and make them leaders and they can decide the less important or difficult cases and only the more difficult cases come to you. So I think that's this group of people that are now recognized among the Israelites as you are men that understand what it means to fear God, to revere God, to be in awe of God. And when we hear that word fear in our culture, it's like, ah, that's, I think the idea of being in awe of someone is kind of better on our ears in terms of to have a, this just sense of this is an awesome God that we are called to serve. And there needs to be a whole lot of respect that I give to this God. And so those people are allowed at the base of the mountain. And then the 70 elders and 
Aaron and Nadab and Abihu, the sons, the priestly class, go up along with Joshua, and they go a little bit closer to the Lord. And it says they come into basically the, the presence of God. Verse, then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and the 70 elders of Israel went up. Again, that word to come up, and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of lapis lazuli. Sue, I've got a picture of lapis lazuli. I don't know. All right, that's what the stone is. And so this idea is, okay, God's above, and it says they see his feet here. And if you look at this stone, to me, I was looking at this and saying, what looks more like kind of the heavens than this kind of stone? This amazing, beautiful stone, but then there's like stars and galaxies and all that stuff kind of worked into the stone. So I think the idea is God is above the heavens, and these elders go up, and they are basically in the presence of God, and it says they see God. And a lot of people said, well, that's a contradiction because later on in Exodus 33, 20, God says when he's talking to Moses and Moses wants to see his glory, he says, nobody can see my face and live. So what's going on here? It says they see him and even the text says, wow, they lived. I don't think this is seeing the very presence of God in his unfiltered glory. The word face or panim is not in here. They see God, but it's not without filtering. It's like they're looking through this pavement and these descriptions of clarity. It's like, well, how can a stone be clear? The same as in Revelation where gold is clear. And it's that idea of purity and amazing just clarity of being in the presence of God. So I think they see a glimpse of God here, but they don't see God in his unfiltered glory. Because if you do, basically you're wiped out. I think one day we'll be given new bodies, new eyes that can behold the glory of the Lord. But that's not yet the case. So I don't think this is a contradiction here. And it's just they go up and they're in the presence of God. And then later on, we're told that Moses and Joshua go up even higher on the mountain. And it's into kind of the very presence of God. And there's a little bit of confusion as what happens to Joshua. We're, we're not told what happens to Joshua. How far did he go up? When did he go down? But he went on with Moses a little bit farther, clearly, than the 70 elders and Aaron and the sons of Aaron. But the reality is you see in this mountain this picture of kind of a, this three-part partition. You've got the base of the mountain where all the people are. Then you've got this place where the 70 elders are and the priests. And then you've got Moses going up to the very presence of God at the top. And I think you see that then represented in the tabernacle as well, right? You've got the outer court where the altar is. Then you've got the holy place where the menorah and the bread of the presence and those things were. And then you've got the most holy place or the holy of holies where only the high priest goes in once a year and it's this presence of God that is present there. And you remember when, we'll get to that, when the tabernacle is built, basically the cloud descends on the tabernacle. And what to me that's a picture of is this tabernacle is kind of making God's presence portable with the people of Israel. He's on Sinai, right? This is the picture, but now you're going to be moving past there. So now God's presence resides with you and goes with the people of God. And as we long, I think, to be close to God, the challenge is to recognize that, you know, we're not holy and, and God is. And to me, the text gives us, again, some clues as to what makes us able to get into the presence of God. And the first thing that I see in this text is a trusting commitment 
to God. In verse 3, we see as Moses declares to the people all this covenant agreement, Moses came to the, told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules, and all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words of the Lord have spoken, we will do. And then down in verse 7 again, he reads it again, and then the book took the book of the covenant, read it in the hearing of the people, and they said, all that the word, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. What are the people saying? We're all in with this God. We want to say that we follow this God. We're committing to be part of this God's covenant people. And I think this involves a level of trust because trust to me and obedience go kind of hand in glove. You know, if you say you trust your doctor and you go to your doctor and your doctor says, well, I want you to take this prescription and I want you to implement these lifestyle changes. And then you leave that office and you just say, yeah, well, whatever. I don't really feel like taking that medicine and doing these kind of things. Do you really trust your doctor then? And to me here, the people are saying, we're going to do everything that the Lord has commanded, saying we trust God. And we recognize as we went through that book of the covenant, how different the laws that God was having for his people were than the surrounding nations. And he's saying, we want to align with you, Lord. We're all in in this process. And again, to me, we recognize as we go through the Old Testament that the people were probably saying much more than they actually followed through on. Because we'll see even in the 40 days when Moses is up on the mountain, the people are like, all right, where's Moses? What in the world's going on? We, we need a new God. So the recognition of this heart attitude is not fully completed in their performance. But as we look at this old covenant, to me, the problem was not with the laws. The problem was with the people. And what the beauty of the new covenant is, this new relationship with Jesus is God says, you know, these people need new hearts. They need hearts that are soft and changed. And the beauty of that is that comes through what Jesus Christ has done in our relationship with him. All this to me pictures ultimately what's going to come with Jesus Christ. And here we have the people saying, we're all in. We want to be about being a part of this God's people. And again, to me, this is something, if we're going to experience intimacy with God, it's got to be, we're all in. And a lot of people are like, well, you know, I want like 63% of Jesus, right? I love his teachings on social justice, you know. I love his teaching on loving your neighbor and, and being about that. But, you know, Jesus teaching on, you know, money, and that I'm not quite as into that. So I'm just going to leave that or his teachings on sex and ethics in that area. Not that thrilled about that. Yet here we have the people saying, we're all in. And I think if we're going to experience intimacy with Christ and to know God, then we've got to say, Lord, I'm all in with you. And I don't fully understand all of this, but I am making a commitment to you. God has laid out the terms of this agreement before the people, right? They'd heard it. They'd been given it. Moses wrote it down here, and he read it. And they're saying, yeah, we want to be about being part 
of this God's people. Now, they don't do that really well, nor do we do that really well at times, but I think my heart has to be fully engaged with God to experience closeness and intimacy with God. And that's hard, I think, in our culture. You know, our culture is very commitment phobic, right? <laughs> I don't know if I'm all in with this, then I may miss out on this. And, you know, it's just, okay. But if I'm going to experience intimacy with God and closeness with God, it's like, Jesus, I'm all in with you. So I don't know where you are this morning, but have you made that commitment? Have you said, God, I'm all in with you? I want to be about trusting you, and I want to be about following you. That's my heart inclination. And I think when anybody comes to Christ, we don't fully understand all the implications of saying, Jesus, I'm all in with you. But our heart has to be at that place where I, this is what I want, right? And then God will bring us along the way and we realize, ooh, you want that part of me too? And we can struggle and we can wrestle and we can stumble with that. But to me, at the core, there needs to be God. I, I want all of you. I want to be in relationship with you. And that's what the people are saying here. We're going to do everything. And again, they don't follow through and they don't follow through very shortly thereafter. But the reality is at this point in time, they're presented with this is God and this is what he's calling you to be as a people. And he says, we want to be, or they say, we want to be part of that. They agree with that. So that to me is vital if we're going to experience closeness and intimacy with God. Jesus said you can't serve two masters, right? You can't serve God and money. You can't serve God and Google. You can't serve God and whatever you're trying to serve, it's, he's got to be our Lord. We come to Jesus Christ, we confess him as our Lord, right? And Savior. And Lord means master, the one that is calling the shots. And these people are at that point that they recognize, God, you're our master. Yahweh, the I am, we want to follow you. So their hearts are fully engaged, even though later on their flesh will lead them very much astray. But at this point in time, they're making this commitment and they say, we agree to the terms that you're laying down here, Lord. We want all that you want for us. So to me, that's, that's one part that gets us close to God. The second part is there needs to be a sacrifice that makes us presentable. Again, you see these young people of Israel, verse 5, and he sent young men of the people of Israel. We don't know who these young men were, but obviously they're functioning in kind of a priestly capacity before the priesthood was even introduced. But they're already aware of these burnt offerings and then peace offerings. These kinds of offerings already are part of that culture. They understand that. The burnt offering was that offering that was totally consumed, right? By God, in essence, consumed. It was fully burnt on the altar, that offering that dealt with guilt and, and all of that kind of stuff was fully consumed on the altar. But there was also the peace offering or also that's translated fellowship offering that was given. And with that offering, not the whole thing was consumed. Just a portion of that offering was given to God on the altar. And then the other portion was to be eaten and feasted on kind of in that area in relationship with God. And so that idea that there needs to be a sacrifice that deals with my guilt, the, the lack of purity, the lack of holiness in my life. 
But also God wants more than just that. He wants fellowship with us. Once that offering is made, then the peace offering comes. And it's like we have peace with God, what? Through Jesus Christ. And then what's the longing of God then is for fellowship with him and with his people. And then there are these 12 pillars that are set up. And then Moses takes some of the blood of these sacrifices and he puts it on the altar, which is common. And then some of the other blood he sprinkles on the people. Now, that's really rare in the Old Testament. The only time that blood was sprinkled on people was for the priests in kind of their cleansing ritual later on that we'll see. And I think this is an indication of what God wanted for his people way back in Exodus 19, where he says, you are a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. This is what I'm designing you to be. People that represent me well among the nations. What is a priest? Someone who knows God and makes God known to others. And God's saying, this is what I want you to be as a people. But before that happens, there needs to be cleansing. The book of Hebrews says that without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. This is something that God has pictured from the beginning, ultimately to culminate in the cross of Jesus Christ. This is a covenant that is established by blood. Turn over to the book of Luke, chapter 22. This is where the new covenant is instituted. I'll start reading in Luke 22, verse 14. And when the hour came, he reclined at table, Jesus, and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. So Jesus, at this last supper meal, this Passover meal, he takes the cup. And I'm sure these Jewish apostles knew exactly this story that we're looking at. And he said, okay, you know how that Covenant was ratified back then. It was by sacrifice and blood being sprinkled. And he says, now there is a new covenant that has come. And that comes through my sacrifice, the offering of my body and the shedding of my blood. This blood of the new covenant is ratifying what is to come. And the new covenant, it's a better covenant. Not that the old covenant was bad, but the new is better, right? The book of Hebrews talks about that. You don't have to turn there, but I'm going to read a couple passages from the book of Hebrews. This is from chapter 12, starting in verse 18. It says, For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and tempest and the sound of a trumpet and the voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. Talking about Sinai and God speaking from Sinai. And he says, it's different for you under the new covenant. For they could not endure the order that was given. Even if a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. 
But you, us who are this side of Christ's sacrifice, you have come to Mount Zion, not to Sinai, and the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. So do you see that picture there that you're, you're coming, but it's different than Sinai. You're coming to Mount Zion, the presence of God, through his grace in Jesus Christ. And he says, this sprinkled blood of Christ is better than the blood of Abel. And I don't think it's talking there about Abel's own blood that has you know, been spilled by Cain. I think what he's talking about is Abel's sacrifice. And saying, okay, this blood of the new covenant is better than any of that Old Testament sacrificial system. That was good for a period of time. But now there's something much better that has come. And that's Jesus Christ and his sacrifice and his blood makes a way where there was no way before. And again, we see with the new covenant that there's access now for all of us into the very presence of God. Right. When Jesus died. One of the Gospels tells us that the curtain in the temple that separated the holy place from the most holy place was torn in two. And it gives an interesting detail. It's torn in two from top to bottom. Why would the Gospel writer put that in there? What does it matter which way it's torn? I think the idea is God is tearing it from the top. God is opening the presence of his very being to all people who come through Jesus Christ and his sacrifice before. So whereas before there were limitations on the amount of intimacy you had with God, if you were just a lay person in Israel, or if you were a priest or a leader, or if you were basically Moses operating in that role of high priest at this point in time, you can enter into the presence of God. But now that way is open for all of us. And we don't come to this terrifying Mount Sinai, the law with all its demands, but we come to Jerusalem, right? This place of God's presence through Jesus Christ, we can approach with boldness and confidence and go there. And Hebrews says we come to this festal gathering of innumerable people made completely righteous. What's a festal gathering? It's a feast, right? So you're not coming to this place where you know, it's austere and you get down on your face. You're coming into the presence of God and in the presence of God, there's a feast. And again, to me, this is the point that God wants us to get to. That enjoying our relationship with God is his goal for all of us. It's pictured to a degree in the Old Testament. And here we have the 70 and Moses and Aaron and Nadab Abihu going up and they're in the presence of God. They see God through this lapis lazuli and whatever that means, and they see his feet. They're in the presence of God. And what happens there? They didn't get killed. That was a good thing, right? And there was God, and then they ate and they drank. They had fellowship with God. Now, in our culture, eating and drinking, it's just, yeah, it's not that big a deal. But in that culture, who is invited to a meal was a really, really big deal. And here is God is saying to these 70, these representatives of Israel, come into my presence because of the sacrifice that has been made on your behalf. You can enter into my presence and I'm not going to wipe you out. 
and I want you to feast in my presence. To me, the gospel is so beautiful because God really, really wants what's really, really good for us. He's not trying to rob us. He's not trying to rip us off. He's saying, I want you to be in my presence. And he brings these 70 up and he says, feast with me for a little while. And they do. And then what he does is he calls Moses up even farther. Again, that verb to come up, come up, come up. And Moses comes into the presence of God. And later on in Deuteronomy, we're told Moses didn't eat or drink anything for 40 days. So he was either supernaturally sustained, but I think that's a picture of the fact, like Jesus said, I have food that you don't know about. And that's to be doing the will of my father in the presence of my father. So I think the idea is that Moses is moving into this place where he's not feasting even on food anymore, but he's feasting on the very presence of God and being with him. That's the push. That's the move. It's not so much even involved in the physical reality of eating and drinking as good as that is, but it's being in the presence of God and knowing that is satisfying enough to sustain me. And I don't even need food and I don't even need water. And we know if that wasn't supernatural, we cannot live very long, especially without water. And so I think the point there is God is sustaining Moses through his very presence. And I think we need to get to that place in our lives where we realize, you know what, God, if I only have you, that's enough. You satisfy me. And sometimes that takes a while and sometimes there's gradations of that. Here we have, there's some effort required by these people, right? They got to climb up the mountain, right? And they got to get up to that place where they experience the presence of God. They have to put forth some effort. I want to be there. I hear you calling me up and I'm going to respond and I'm going to follow. And then for Moses, he's called up again and he's like, okay, we're going even further on. And this is a little frightening, frankly, <laughs> at this point in time. But he pushes on and he goes up and he enters the cloud and the last come up or go up is verse 18. Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain and Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. So he is in the very presence of God. Again, to me, God is calling us into relationship. And that relationship is something that's supposed to be deeply satisfying. It's interesting that Tim read Psalm 16 this morning. In your presence, fullness of joy, and at your right hand, pleasures forevermore. That doesn't sound like a bummer of a place to be, right? I tell people, I've experienced joy in my life, but I've never experienced fullness of joy. And I think, okay, think of the best experience you ever had with a person in a place, and the bummer about that is you know, okay, that's going to end sometime, <laughs> you know? And in God's presence is fullness of joy. This is joy that goes on and on and on at your right hand, pleasures forevermore. That's God's heart and his desire for his people. Because we're all that? No. But because that's who God is. Gracious and compassionate. Overflowing with chesed. Loving kindness towards us, right? This is just his nature. He wants us to experience him. God's goal for our lives is joy in his presence. Remember reading the story I've told this before about a husband um, and his wife, and he struggles with health issues, and uh, 
you know, so his wife puts him on this really austere diet and, uh, and, you know, he, he dies anyhow after, you know, five or 10 years. And then, you know, his wife lives a little longer and gets to, to heaven. Um, and he's sitting at this massive banquet table feasting in heaven and his wife enters in and he walks up to her and he smacks her across the face. I'm like, whoa, that shouldn't happen in heaven, right? And he says, if it wasn't for your stinking health food, I'd have been here five years earlier. <laughs> and again, the reality is, like Paul said, to, to be in the presence of God, there's nothing better than that. Paul was called up to the third heaven, the very presence of God, and he couldn't even utter what he saw there. And he says, man, for me to depart and be with the Lord, it's marginally better than the life I'm living right now. No, he says it's better by far. There's nothing that compares. But as long as God has some purpose for me here, I'm willing to stay here until he calls me up there. But you know what? My goal is to be called up there into the presence of God. So I don't know where you are this morning. But I want to extend God's invitation to you to come up, to come closer. And to recognize that that's not going to be experienced unless you really say, Jesus, I'm all in with you. I fully want to be part of what you're doing in this world. I want to align myself with you. I want to trust you. And again, I don't think any of us fully understand all the implications of that at first, but there's got to be that heart in us that wants to say, God, I want to follow you through Jesus. I'm in. And then a recognition, you know what? Jesus' sacrifice has made that way possible. And now I can enter into his presence with boldness and confidence and experience mercy and grace in my time of need, which is every moment of every day to understand that the holy, holy God of this universe accepts me, not because I'm all that acceptable, because of what Jesus Christ has done for me. And I want to say this morning, I've graciously came to that point right after I graduated college, and God has been so, so good to me. Life has not always been easy, but following him has been the best thing that I've ever decided to do in my life. And it can be the best thing for you. He's not trying to rob you. He's not trying to rip you off. Jesus says, I've come that they may have life and have that life abundantly. And we all chase after a million gods. And in that culture, there were a million different gods to chase after as well. But these people recognize, you know what? There's life in this. And I want to be part of that life. And the beauty of the new covenant is that through Jesus, then we are accepted and then the Holy Spirit takes entrance into our life and begins to enable us to live out the commands of Christ, to love God with all we've got, heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbors as ourselves. That's not something that we can do. The Old Testament makes that very clear. These people fall almost immediately after this, but God in his grace keeps reaching out, keeps loving, ultimately saying, you know what? You can't do it. That's why I'm going to send my son. All this was a picture to move toward Jesus Christ, that ultimate sacrifice. And we have time now this morning to worship a little bit and then to enjoy the table of the Lord. So as we worship the Lord, may your heart be in tune with him. And just spend some time, even in worship, if you have not fully surrendered to Jesus Christ, to really consider that. To look at your life and say, well, what am I really committed to? Am I really all on board with Jesus? 
And if you're not, this would be a great time to make that choice and to recognize that that choice is not cleaning up your life and getting it all together to be acceptable to God. It's trusting in Jesus' sacrifice to make us acceptable. And then he begins by his spirit to change us from the inside out.